Okay. And let me set my timer. And then Lisa, you will have two minutes for your opening statement. Just give me one second. All right, Lisa, I'm starting your two minutes now. Good afternoon, and thank you for hosting this event. My name is Lisa Neal Delgado, and I'm running for state representative in Senate District 59B. I'm a lifelong Northsider. I received my primary and secondary education right here on the North Side. While I've attended various colleges throughout the country and around the world, I'm a proud alumni of Virginia State University, where I graduated magnum cum laude with a degree in history and political science. Unlike, claim, unlike claims of some here, I've received, I've been active in my community in one or more capacity for decades. I'm a mother, a grandmother, a sister, a niece, an aunt, a cousin, and a friend. I'm a community member in one of the most underserved communities in the state. I am a soldier who served this country for almost 23 years. So most days I'm a proud military veteran too. Some call me a community activist, but in reality, I feel more like a social firefighter trying to hold my community together. Some days I'm a combat medic. Other days I'm a counselor trying to help those in need. Many in the DFL call me uncontrollable or unpredictable because my, loyalty, my only loyalty is to my community and the people living in this district and across the state. I'm not seeking political office to represent interest groups that continue to prey upon under, underserved communities of color. I am and have always been personally invested in this community um, because I have family and friends that have lived here for decades. I, don't, I didn't move here to run for political office like many other politicians. I know the history of the district and its people who continue to be left out of the great American dream. My pledge is to always fight for them. I was born to serve, but I was trained to lead. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. Esther, I'm starting your two minutes now. Thank you so much, Elijah. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Esther Egbaje, and I'm also running to be the next state representative for House District 59B. As mentioned earlier, this district covers parts of the north side as well as all of downtown Minneapolis. And I am the DFL candidate for this seat. I wanna thank Elijah today again for hosting this forum. I started this campaign about a year ago this month with the goal of building the most inclusive district in this state. As a way of background, I grew up in St. Paul and my family spent some time in Brainerd and in Faribault. I then went out east for uh, my college and my first career with the US Department of State and then for law school. Now I practice medical malpractice on the plaintiff side with a firm in Minneapolis. I also volunteer with the Volunteer Lawyers Network on housing issues and with local environmental justice organizations across the city. Part of why I decided to run was to ensure that our decision makers were putting the needs of people first, that we were providing people with their basic necessities like housing, education, and access to a clean environment. Those things are crucial for the health and wellness of our community, from individual healthcare to public safety. It is important that we have leadership that wants to help us in these endeavors rather than hinder us. 
One of the tools that people can make that people can use to make a difference in their government is to vote. And that is why this election year is so important. So I look forward to this, this discussion as a way to help voters make a decision to get to know candidates running in their communities. Thank you. Thank you, Esther. Now we're moving on to Alan. Um, thank you, Elijah, and thank you, Lisa, for your service, including within the last 20 hours. Appreciate it. Um, I'm Alan Shalepsky, and uh, And I've been trained as a physicist and as a public policy analyst, and I've worked for the US EPA and GAO and for the Minnesota State Planning Agency. As a small business owner, I've developed databases for businesses and I've created jobs. I lived in downtown Minneapolis for 40 years and was a co-founder of the Downtown Neighborhood Association, head of my 500 unit condo, served on the board of an affordable housing provider, tutored at the juvenile detention center, I've election judged, and I've cooked for homeless youth. I also co-chaired a police community relations council for the fourth precinct and wrote most of their report. I've been a Democrat, a reformer, and for the last 18 years, a Republican. I worry that many naive idealists are throwing away our precious legacy of self-government, government by the people, instead of by bureaucrats, experts, and consultants. They've been undermining our legacy of freedom of expression and free enterprise, equal protection and due process of law, and our universalist goal of e pluribus unum. Is our country perfect? Of course not. But until we took a wrong turn about 50 years ago, we were on the track of continually expand the we in we the people. We should get back on track. We should enhance our good aspects and we should appreciate more what we have. Remember, people have died trying to come here. What did they know that we seem to have forgotten? Thank you. Thank you, Alan. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Esther. All right, now we're gonna move in into discussing the questions that I have. So the first topic is going to be police accountability because Alan, you went last, you're gonna go first on answering this question first. I'm going to allow you to have two minutes for your response and then we're gonna move on to the next candidate. All the candidates are gonna to get to respond and then if there's, um, if, if there's any rebuttals or if you feel that any person had um, a comment or any, um, anything that they said was directed towards you and your campaign, I will allow you um, your minute to respond. Um, and then you guys can go back and forth for a little while. If it exceeds three minutes, I will cut it off. So just to be clear, every candidate's gonna get to answer the question first. Then you all will have one minute to offer a rebuttal if you have one. If not, we're gonna move on to the next question. If I see that there is a rebuttal, I will allow, allow the candidates, if it's all three, that's fine. If it's just two, that's okay. I'll allow you all to go back and forth up to three minutes and then I'll cut it off after three minutes. Is everyone okay with that? Okay. So the first um, topic is police accountability. Um, Alan, as a city council of Minneapolis vowed to defund the police as we know it and replace the police system with a new community-based model can you tell us, are you in favor of the current approach that's um, currently being taken? And then also, 
What do you think should be the first step in ensuring police accountability for the city of Minneapolis and also the state of Minnesota? So it's a two-part question, Alan. Okay. Two minutes starts now. Okay. Um, first of all, in terms of defunding the police, definitely not. I really feel that the first necessity of a, a peaceful society is having some force that will maintain order. And I'm not in favor of throwing out everything in the middle of a crisis. I think we have to look at what works. I think one regrettable thing is people look at what happened at 38th and Chicago and they go and pin it on, well, four people instead of just one person. And they go and pin it on the entire police department, which to my mind is grossly stereotyping and totally unfair. And in fact, when we have people like the governor and many public leaders go out and say things and use words like killing or murder, it seems to go against our whole idea of presumption of innocence and looking and hearing all the sides and all the cams and uh, video cams and then making a, a decision. So no, I don't want to defund the police. I know that some people are saying we ought to reallocate budget. That's always a consideration, but I wouldn't hand it to untried institutions to do most of the work. And I think that what we've seen in the last several months shows that there's been a breakdown of order because we've disrespected the people who we normally depend on to maintain the peace and the order with all their problems. 90% of them are fine, 95, 98%. But to go and blame everyone, please. Thank you, Alan. Esther, you're up next. I'm going to repeat the question for you. Um, so as a city of as a city council of Minneapolis vowed to defund the police as we know it and replace the police system with a new community-based model, can you tell us, are you in favor of the current approach? And then the second part of that question is, what do you think should be the first step in ensuring police accountability? Your two minutes will be starting now. Thank you very much, Elijah. So yes, the um, City Council of Minneapolis did make a big show of saying that they wanted to reallocate funding for police. Um, I'm definitely in favor of that approach of reallocation. I think it's time that we look at public safety as a way to make sure that we are keeping all of our constituents safe. That's what everyone wants at the end of the day. So part of that is making sure our police are the right size for um, the job that we actually want them to do. But when it comes to other jobs like traffic stops, um, mental health type issues, domestic violence issues, we know that there are other organizations that have better capabilities of doing that work. We've also known from police officers that that's also the type of work that they wanna step back from so they can focus on specifically crime intervention. So that's, so that's my idea with the reallocation of funding. I think that that is a good approach and the, and the city council also wants to have one year to talk about this process. It's not gonna happen overnight and they do wanna have community input, which is the way it should be to make sure we have a robust public safety for our community. For the state of Minnesota, I think some of the things that we can continue to do is, you know, implement those laws that were recently passed through the Posse Caucus, and then also consider additional um, regulations and laws to make sure that our police are held to the highest standards. 
police officers should, you know, hold similar professional insurance like doctors and lawyers to hold them accountable when they do something wrong. We also want to make sure that those um, decisions when a municipality makes a decision to fire a police officer or to hold a police officer accountable, that those decisions are upheld and not easily overturned so we don't have a revolving door. And finally, we want to continue to look at ways to make sure that police officers live either in or near our communities. So we're not necessarily facing people who are coming in brand new into the situation. So those are the types of things that I think should um, continue to move forward for public safety. Thank you. Um, next, we have Lisa. I'm gonna repeat the question and then I'll start your two minutes. As the city council of Minneapolis vowed to defund the police as we know it and replace the police system with a new community-based model, can you tell us, are you in favor of the current approach? The second part of the question, what do you think should be the first step in ensuring police accountability? Lisa, your two minutes is starting now. Absolutely not. I do not support defunding the police. I don't uh, support... Absolutely not. I don't support um, defunding the police. Um, accountability is a very important thing, and that is where I would like to focus on. I think that in defunding the police, what we've done, and, and Alan has alluded to, what we've done is we've created and we've opened up the door for total chaos here in Minneapolis. Alan has thanked me for a situation that I sent, I responded to this morning, but I respond to these situations as a community member week after week after week. And quite honestly, I'm tired of it. The police are under, under they're, un, they're stretched thin now. They don't have enough officers on the street to address uh, the day-to-day -day crime that's going on. They don't have officers on the, enough officers on the street to prevent the crimes or just to act as a deterrent to show uh, that they are out there on the street. They don't have a chance to interact with people before they become involved in criminal activity, such as officers have done in past times walking on, walking the beat um, in the neighborhoods of, such as mine. Um, Part of the accountability, um, as Esther just alluded to, is um, ensuring that once officers are identified for misconduct and terminated from those positions, there is an easy way back onto the department through arbitration um, or any other form. The other thing that we have to do at the state level is we have to be able to um, look at the post board. How are we certifying these officers? How are we certifying these officers that are transfers? A lot of officers transfer into our jurisdiction, transfer into our state from other jurisdictions or from other states. And they've already had misconduct allegations. They're already under investigation, um, such as the case of, um, I believe one of the officers involved in Jamar Clark's homicide. Sorry to cut you off, your two minutes are up, thank you. For answering that question. All right, we're gonna move, or at this point, um, we're going to open up the floor for any rebuttals. Um, if anyone wants to reply to anything that the specific candidate said, um, you can do so now. I do just ask that we, um, we be respectful and just allow one person to talk at a time. You will have one minute each for that rebuttal. Um, I would make a point about the issue of a point of accountability and the problem with uh, the union having so much power to make uh, disciplinary actions um, not stick. Uh, when I was studying this um, a couple decades ago, we learned about the, the police contract and we realized that 
it was almost designed to make it very difficult for management to control the workforce. And frankly, I think this is the case with many public employee contracts. When you have politicians having a big say in contracts and they also are getting endorsements from the people they are contracting with, sometimes those contracts uh, are not as tight and as strong as they should be. We have to make it easier for the management to get rid of the, the bad guys and uh, also to do assignments in line with what they feel makes most sense. I was very distressed when I found- um, Your minute is up. Does anyone want to um, comment or reply to anything Alan just said? You have one minute. Jump in. I agree with Alan that there is an issue with the contracts and particularly the Minneapolis Police Federation contract. Um, that does need to be relooked at. That does need to be renegotiated. We have to make sure that we're protecting officers, but we also have to make sure that there's room to get rid of officers who have abused their positions and um, been a detriment to the community. Yeah, I would just add that I think along those lines, you know, the community safety is utmost is the most utmost importance. Um, making sure that we have the resources to support people in getting housing, jobs, education, things that keep people stabilized. Um, so then that way, you know, hopefully it makes for a much safer situation for everyone involved whenever there's an incident. I'd like to go ahead and say something else, though. You know, um, Esther talked about um, officers not responding to domestic violence calls. Well, more, more, more police officers are killed responding to domestic violence calls. Um, make no mistake about it, domestic violence is a crime. And to say that officers shouldn't be responding to domestic violence, domestic assault cases is just totally ridiculous to me, in my opinion, because when they show up, they're showing up because somebody is in fear. And if you intimidate somebody, if you threaten somebody, or if you beat somebody upside the ham head with a hammer, all three of those are a crime. Actually, one of the things that I've learned- Well, can it, Alan, before you jump in, can I just respond? Go ahead, Esther, I'm uh, going seconds, go ahead. Okay, yes, those, those things are crimes under the law right now, Lisa, but I think in addition to having, either in addition to having a police officer or sometimes some, some survivors of domestic violence would have preferred um, someone who could help them in that situation get to a place of safety rather than necessarily having to deal with someone who could potentially escalate the situation. Um, so while there may be a role for police in a domestic violence situation, I think there's an opportunity to look at how do we expand that to uh, crisis workers, um, mental health providers, social workers, to kind of get to get that survivor into a place of safety and then also to work with the work with the abuser. Extra 10 seconds. Thank you, Esther. Alan, if you want to go ahead and respond, I'll give you 30 seconds. I will allow yeah. you to finish up your last thought. So, so please, okay. when, I, when I put up my hand or something like that, just acknowledge me, okay? Alan, yeah. go ahead. You got 30 seconds. My worry is what's going to happen at dispatch because there's going to be a lot of responsibility on their hands if they have to decide between a social worker or sending a cop to a situation. I could see lawsuits. I could see a lot of unhappiness. And to be honest, with the whole George Floyd thing, as I understood, there was EMTs in the vicinity that didn't get there as quickly as maybe they should have. And we have to talk about what the responsibilities of the various first responders are. 
in terms of coming on these scenes. Okay, Th thank you, Alan. Um, it seems that you all are really passionate about that subject of police accountability, as many people are. It is the hot button topic right now in our community and at the state level as well. Um, so thank you all for engaging in that. All right, we're gonna move into our second topic, which is going to be housing affordability. And then who did I have go first last time? Um, I was. You went first. So this time, Esther, you're going to go first. Lisa, you're going to follow Esther. And then Alan, we'll have you go last. So housing affordability. One of the many problems that the Northside community endures is the lack of affordable rental properties. As an elected official, how will you address the current housing crisis on the north side and throughout the state of Minnesota? Esther, your two minutes will start. Right now. Thank you, Elijah. Um, yes, this is definitely one of a very important question for our community. Um, it's part of the reasons why I jumped into this race. Um, even before COVID-19, we saw that there was a, a housing crisis looming in Minneapolis. Um, rentals were tight. Um, I think at any point there was about a two to 4% vacancy rate. And so for me, what's really important is that housing is actually seen and treated as a fundamental human right. We must make sure that people have a safe and affordable place to stay. Um, we also need to make sure that as you alluded in your question, a number of properties are rental properties and that tenants' rights are protected. Um, so some of the things that I would really like to see done to make sure that uh, housing is much more affordable, particularly in, in the rental space, is to make sure that we do have a bonding bill that goes through that helps um, build more housing, build more public housing, um, that we also uh, work to ensure that tenants are protected. So one of the things I wanna make sure is that evictions do not attach to their record at the beginning. Um, and also working with developers and uh, contractors to make sure that we are building buildings that are actually at 30% of a person's income and that we're pegging that number, not to a countywide AMI, but more to even a neighborhood AMI to make sure that those rates are actually at 30% or less for someone. Um, so those are some of the major things I think that would work to um, start to bring down the housing prices. I think we also need to look at programs that um, advance home ownership um, and also look at innovative ways of home ownership, whether it's community ownership of a building, um, more co-ops, more ways that people can be involved and that we're building mixed income neighborhoods so that way we're not concentrating levels of poverty in any one place. Okay, thank you, Esther. All right, next we're gonna have Lisa. I'll repeat the question. So one of the many problems that the Northside community endures is the lack of affordable rental properties. As an elected official, how will you address the current housing crisis on the north side and throughout the state? Your two minutes um, now. A big issue is afford truly affordable housing in Minneapolis is far less than the affordable housing index across Hennepin County or the income in Hennepin County. The one that needs to be addressed because we all understand that this county is a very rich county. However, the people in North Minneapolis make just a fraction of what is uh, of that income. So truly affordable housing needs to be affordable to the location, the zip code, and not the county overall. The second thing is we have an abundance of vacant lots in the city, particularly here in North Minneapolis, that are they are starting to build new houses that are, aren't affordable for 
uh, most people in the, um, living in the North Minneapolis area. We also have a lot of abandoned houses that were sold, um, but we still have plenty more abandoned housings. They could be rehabbed. I would support um, um, bonding to rehab the abandoned houses that we have, build more houses um, so that we can move people towards um, home ownership or uh, rental um, or rent at um, affordable prices for the people here in the city of Min or here in the area of North Minneapolis. Thank you, Lisa. Alan, you're up next. The question is, uh, one of the many problems that the Northside community endures is a lack of affordable rental properties. As an elected official, how will you address the current housing crisis on the North side and throughout the state? I'm going to start your timer now. Okay. Uh, first of all, I don't consider housing wherever you want a right, just like I don't think everybody has a right to, I don't know, go to Harvard or something. It's that old thing of, uh, you know, everyone should have transportation, but not everyone gets a Cadillac. And I think what Minneapolis government has done is in a way their policies have made things very expensive. I think some of the regulations, the housing regulations on the one hand, but then some very stringent enforcement have driven up the costs of housing. And you can look in other jurisdictions and you'll find that similar housing is much cheaper than it is in Minneapolis. So that's one of the things driving things up. A second thing is 20, 30 years ago, there was almost a persecution of small private landlords. Some of them were not so good, but they also were housing providers of last resort. And in fact, the city through some of its police policies caused some affordable housing to go down. I think it was a 12 unit building over on Golden Valley Road where there was one unit where there was some drug dealing going on. Whenever there was a police call, that address would get logged and it kept getting logged because of one bad actor. And when the landlord said to the cops, help me get rid of these people, they said, if we don't see it committed, we can't do anything. So it was put on the landlord to try and figure out how to enforce the drug laws. Eventually that building was knocked down. 11 units of good residents lost their homes. And I'll tell you, you know, when people, homeowners in the neighborhood cheer, affordable housing like that being knocked down, that doesn't send a good sign. And we need to go and help landlords uh, do what they're trying to do too. Thank you, Alan. Your time is up. And I believe that was our last candidate that answered that question. So at this point, we will move into the rebuttal round um, and we can just start that. Whoever wants to talk, you have one minute. Okay, um, I hate jumping in here, but I'm going to jump on in here and try this, Elijah. None of us I noticed. Um, none of us I noticed talked about the homeless situation, and that is big. That's probably the mo uh, most dire housing crisis here in uh, Minneapolis, particularly as it comes to North Minneapolis. Um, however, we have buildings out at Fort Snelling that have been standing vacant for the last twenty plus years. Those buildings could easily be updated rehab and used as temporary homeless shelters, temporary housing 
so that we can um, get services in one location for people. It's right on a major bus line. They were already housing units. All they need to do is be updated. And like I said, at one point, I think the military had over 6,000 people there. They've been empty for 20 plus, 30 plus years now and would be a great location um, that is not centered in the middle of a community. And they also have the resources um, nearby so that they can get those wraparound services to help these people transition. You, Lisa. Your, your minute expired. Thank you. Does anyone else have a rebuttal? I think um, I would just actually like to respond to something Alan said about this idea that people shouldn't have a right to housing. Um, I think it is true that people actually do have a right to housing. I think it is patently unfair that we, that our answer as a society to people who no longer have money, um, and especially now in a pandemic where through no, many times no fault of their own, are out on the street. Um, and as Lisa alluded to, that means that our homelessness crisis is growing. And so we need to be a state that is not afraid to take bold action and bold steps to buying up the properties that we need to, making sure that we're providing transitional and then permanent housing and focusing on a housing first type of policy to make sure that people are in a safe, stable location so that way they can then be able to build on themselves by making sure they can keep their jobs, keep their kids educated and that they know they have a place to go home to at the end of the night. Thank you. Um, Alan, do you have a rebuttal to that? You'll have one minute. I think you got to unmute yourself, Alan. Problems I had last time, I couldn't find the unmute button. Um, government, I think, should be sort of a referee and a setter of the rule. Setter the rules. I don't always think it's a good provider of services. Sometimes yes, but oftentimes no. And one of the things that's worrying me with the homeless crisis is it looks as though the county's going to get into the provision of housing. They're buying uh, a couple of uh, places. They're talking about putting in the tiny homes or uh, little houses in them. And I'm not so sure we want to be getting going down that pathway because I don't think that it is necessarily the most efficient provider. And I think sometimes if we can find through bidding and other things, other providers that can do um, a job and be efficient and less political, uh, I think we're better off. So I really worry about that. With regards to it being a right, I don't want Thank anyone homeless, but I do think we have to make sure that uh, we just Trump don't guarantee more than we can. Thank, th thank you, Alan. Uh, your minute is up. I, I do want to stay on this for a couple extra minutes. I'm actually going to eliminate one of the questions that we had. Um, I want to pretty I want you guys to elaborate a little bit more on this conversation so the state of Minnesota is projected to have a five billion dollar budget deficit according to the current um, congressional budget office projections and that's for the 2023 biennium um, you all are familiar with that correct can I just get a head nod so how do you expect the state of Minnesota to provide affordable housing or subsidies if we're projected to have a $5 billion deficit? And that could be more, um, assuming, you know, that those projections are based on COVID-19 ending fairly quickly here. Now, if this thing drags out for another year or so, I mean, those projections could be further exacerbated, right? So um, I'll allow Esther to answer the question first. I'll give you a minute and then we'll go Lisa and then we'll go Alan. 
Yeah, I mean, this is going to be like a major situation, right? But it's, again, it goes back to the idea of what are we putting the money towards the scarce resource that we have towards? So I think it's a situation where we need to be investing in things that keep people safe and things that get allow people to get back on their feet, allow people to deal with this COVID crisis, and housing is one of those. So we need to make sure that we are using the, the scarce resources that we have in a way that's going to make sure that we're, you know, investing in the care economy because a lot of people are going to be needing, you know, help to, to recover from COVID, making sure that there are jobs in those spaces that people can get that are living wage jobs, and then making sure that we are using those, those funds to support people to stay in their homes, keep the eviction moratorium in place, actually get rid of the loopholes that they had just put in place in the eviction moratorium. So that way more people can stay in their homes. And then we also provide those funding and those resources so that way landlords can make the repairs to homes that they need to, and then help cities and counties across the state of Minnesota be able to provide that transitional to permanent housing for members of our community that are out on the street. So thank, it's going to you, take- mm -hmm. that, was, that was your one minute. Thank you. Um, Lisa, you have one minute. I mean, because of the shortfall, because absolutely, because of the shortfall um, in the deficit, what the state of Minnesota is going to have to do is look at their other budget, look at their other funding sources, things like the legacy fund um, for arts and waterways and things like that. It's time that everybody's going to have to contribute to this crisis and we're going to have to use that money, shift that money or those funds um, for lesser priority and i'm not saying the arts aren't important and i'm not saying that our waterways are not important but we're going to have to sh we're going to have to use those funds to help fight homelessness to um have bonding grants to keep people in their homes we can't expect landlords not to be able to evict people um they can't pay their rents if the landlords can't pay the mortgages so once again we're going to have to continue the funding for the housing um, for the housing crisis as we have right now, the eviction crisis, the moratorium on evictions, but we've also gonna have to look across thank, state. Thank you, Lisa, You're, that was your minute. I know that minute goes by fast, so thank you all. Um, Alan, you have yeah. one minute, start now. Okay, um, I worry about letting one crisis go and overpower other types of crises. And Lisa and I both had experience going to the Gordon Center uh, rallies where the county and the city and actually the school board had a hand in it wanted to put a housing shelter temporary housing up there in Willard Hay and the problem was it wasn't something that the community was consulted on or wanted and even worse there was a need up there for a place a community center for for youth to be at and to go and have county priorities and federal priorities come down on a community and in effect tell them, well, you forget about being able to use this for that community center right next to a playground because the people above us have given us a unfunded mandate in effect, just isn't right in my opinion. We just can't go and let one Thank crisis you, overpower all the others. Thank you, Alan. Um, that was your one minute. Um, we're going to move in to our next topic, which is economic development, which actually this is, uh, this is a perfect segue because you all touched on a few different um, aspects of this question, which is bonding and also community engagement. So bonding bill, which you know, as a state representative, you're actually in charge 
um, of approving or passing bonding bills. Um, so I think this is a very appropriate question for this group of folks that we have in front of us. Um, so as you all know, there are many development projects that are in progress right now on the north side and throughout the city of Minneapolis, especially um, since the uprising in multiple neighborhoods um, were impacted by the rioting and the looting. Um, and there is a plan right now for an estimated $500 million project, which is the Upper Harbor Terminal Project. Um, do you think large-scale development projects like UHT are beneficial to the community? That's one part of the question. And then the second part is, would you support a bonding bill to appropriate state tax dollars to kickstart a program of this magnitude. Now, I'm going to allow you all three minutes to answer this question as it is directly related to the North Side and also your role as a state legislator. So I'm gonna allow you all three minutes to answer this. And I believe we're going to have Lisa go first, Alan second, and then Esther, you get to have the opportunity to answer this question last now. Is that okay with everyone? All right. Lisa, you have three minutes starting now. Sorry about that. <laughs> I'm having problems with this new thing. Um, first of all, yes, I do support the Upper Harbor Terminal, but that's not the only project and they can't all be this massive. Um, I support the project as long as, I mean, because it does have a, it has the potential to bring new revenue um, increase um, economic development for small businesses, particularly people of color, um, indigenous, um, and his, um, just people of color in general. Um, but I would also like to make sure that um, preferences given to those small businesses that are coming out of the 55411 and the 55412 and the 55405 um, um, zip codes um, to help develop those small businesses and also make sure that um, children, youth have, there's plenty of opportunity for youth employment in those areas because youth employment is the biggest um, desert that we have here in the North Minneapolis area. There's absolutely no jobs for young people. And so if the Upper Harbor Terminal is going to employ uh, the young people over the summer and after school and on the weekends, I strongly support that initiative. Um, but like I said, that can't be the only initiative. We also have to make sure that we bring other businesses into the near North Minneapolis area, into the Willard Hay neighborhood, into um, the into the neighborhoods we don't have um, dry cleaners here we don't there's there's such a plethora of businesses small businesses that we don't have here that we're going to have to provide funding opportunities and grants to help establish those small businesses and also the grants to help maintain the businesses the small businesses that were hit directly by COVID-19 that are in the area and you do have about 50 seconds left so I'm going to engage with you if that's okay Sure. Do you think, so to your knowledge, do you think that there's been a, an appropriate amount of community engagement and um, conversations with community around Upper Harbor Terminal? Do you think that your community is educated on what's taking place in their backyard right now? There's been a large, there's been a lot of, there's been a significant amount of community engagement. The problem is the community engagement typically has been up in the Upper Harbor area. Um, in um, Philippe Cunningham's neighborhood. 
they did have some engagement in the near North Minneapolis neighborhoods, but unfortunately it was all last minute and a lot of people didn't get a chance to go out and participate in those conversations. Okay. Thank you, Lisa. All right. Next we have Alan. Alan, do you need me to repeat the question or do you think you're okay? No, I'm, I'm good. You're okay. asking the wrong person because I'm still mad that they closed the lock. I remember when I was at the School of Public Affairs, which is now the Humphrey Institute, looking out the window during class and seeing the tugs pushing the barges up the river. I like a working river. There's a reason that Minneapolis is here, and it's because of the industry along the river. And I don't think we should turn our back on that. Um, it bothers me that they closed the, uh, the city of Minneapolis, you know, the port of Minneapolis. And the idea of an outdoor venue, a music venue that are going to be charging rates that will not be appropriate for many of the people in the neighborhood. I mean, the only way they're going to get jobs out of that are going to be trickle down jobs. And it just doesn't make any sense to me. Um, when I hear that First Avenue is involved, they, they always get these outside contractors that are going to make everything wonderful. And sometimes maybe we don't need these giant projects. Maybe there's other things we should be doing. Um, I just don't feel this one is appropriate. It's sort of a entertainment gentrification project that it seems to me, and I got to admit, I'm not totally fully educated on it, but I'm not comfortable with it. I'd rather see things that would go and create industry and jobs on the north side that are indigenous, that are often small business. There should be other things we can try. One of the ideas I've heard is trying to go and tie business subsidies based on employment of people who live on the north side. So you got a certain number of people working for you that live, have an address on the north side, you're gonna get a benefit. Maybe it'd be a property tax benefit, maybe it'd be a sales tax benefit, but some sort of way of really incenting the job providers on the north side with an incentive to expand and get more people there. I, I will say, of course, that necessary for any kind of development is going to be law and order, safety, police. I mean, I was outraged when I saw that people from Lake Street after the, you know, the George Floyd, uh, you know, situation went up to the north side and started messing around on West Broadway and took out the two holidays on North Washington. And the Cubs store, my God, and the, the Walgreens for that matter. It really, really bothers me. And it's that kind of thing which makes it hard to keep businesses there. In my time, I remember when Target was up there where the Cub is now. And now the Cub that's there, that's come back, is half of the Cub that used to be there. We've got to make we, – we've got to go and take care. Thank you, Thank you Alan. That was your three minutes. Sorry. No, it's, no it's, you don't have to apologize, <laughs> sir. Um, Esther? Yes. Um, so Do you need me to repeat the question or you think you're okay? I think, I'm, I think I've got it. Um, okay. So the Upper Harbor Terminal Project is, you know, necessary in the sense that it, it is necessary for us to develop that plot of land that's up there. 
I have issues and questions with exactly what is going to be there. So I think the parts of the project that are focused on housing, um, I think there's still some need to talk about transportation of how people are gonna get up there. Um, parts of the project that are focused on environmental justice, whether it's urban agriculture, um, building a parks area there. I think that those are things in the project that should move forward, um, particularly to the extent that they will be providing permanent jobs um, for members of our community, particularly black and brown people in our community. But I think the thing that we really need to question and, and definitely slow down is the, the entertainment piece of the project, the first avenue piece of the project. Is this really the best time to be investing in an industry that has seen significant declines because of COVID and it's really hard to tell when that type of stuff is gonna come back. Um, in, the, in the sense then, of what else could be done up there, you know, I think that this is an opportunity for us to engage the community from the beginning. I think part of the questions that surround the Upper Harbor Tunnel project is that it was presented kind of, you know, fully baked to the community and trying to shoehorn in, um, you know, people's approval. And obviously there's a lot of questions still surrounding it. There's still a lot of issues that need to be addressed. I think, as I mentioned, transportation is a really big one of it. And then also just making sure how we are inviting in and including our black and brown business owners, making sure that those jobs are permanent all the way through. So while I think that there's definitely um, parts of the project that you know, can move forward and should move forward, I think that there are pieces of the project that we should also slow down on and look at re-engaging that and figuring out what is actually going to be the most useful and the most beneficial um, to this district and to the surrounding communities where that area is. And, and you still do have a minute left. So if, if you're okay with it, I'll engage you as well. Um, do you think to your knowledge that there's been a fair amount of um, community conversations, community inputs based around Upper Harbor Terminal? And do you think that the community is actually aware of what's actually taking place? I would say that there, you know, there has been engagement. Um, I think a lot of it has kind of come in on the back end, though. And so I think, again, the with COVID, we're, you know, reassessing a lot of things. So I think this is an opportunity to continue that dialogue and that engagement, bringing more people into the conversation. So that way people understand exactly what's happening there. They know about the housing project up there. They know that there's still a need for transportation up there and that they understand kind of what can happen with urban agriculture up there. So yeah, I think there's still, there's always still more room for conversation. Thank you, Esther. Um, we're gonna enter into the rebuttal round. I'm gonna allow a minute and 30 seconds this time. Um, if there's anyone that wants to respond to anything that another candidate said, you can do so now. Um, Alan talked about um, it being- Are you a, muted? No, I'm unmuted. Alan talked about it being an outdoor um, area being um, racially isolated. Um, first of all, uh, First Avenue is a local company um, they've been providing um, entertainment to this community for, wow, 20, 30, I don't even want to go back to say 40 years, um, but it was originally Uncle Sam's. And um, the, the entertainment has been significantly diverse. Uh, Roots, George Clinton, Tribe Called Quest, Next, Minnesota's um, Mint Condition, um, they have been very diverse in their entertainment, Alan. So, and um, the First Avenue is a company that's here. I, I meant it being an outdoor venue in a climate that, uh, you know, you can't do outdoor entertainment probably five months of the year. 
snow and what have you. I, you know, I'll also mention, because there was mention of urban agriculture, my wife and I were exploring around the port of, of Minneapolis one day, and we found out that Minneapolis mushrooms were up there and uh, went in and talked with them. I, they're not mushrooms that I'm interested in eating, but apparently they were doing a good business and they got pushed out, unfortunately. Another thing is these big, bright ideas that come from downtown. You know, the first thing that I thought of was, yeah, like the Weber Park natural swimming pool that apparently was closed half of the time because they were having pollution problems. That does not serve the people of the North Side. Thank you, Alan. But jobs do serve the people in the north side. Yeah. And it has the potential of providing significant amount of summer jobs for youth that don't have employment right now. I'm wondering if those will be the trickle-down jobs that the entertainment and hospitality industry typically has. I'd like to see other things which can be long-term well-paying, middle-class supporting career jobs. Well, right. And I think that that's part of the reason why, you know, the urban agriculture aspect is important, the transportation aspect is important, and the housing aspect is important, because those can start to provide some of those permanent jobs, those well-paying jobs for, for people to really benefit from this, from this development, from this development piece. Now, there is a lot, and I'm going to extend the time on this one for a few minutes, because I think this is a very important question, actually. Um, there is a, people who are in opposition of the Upper Harbor Terminal Project. A lot of them say that large-scale projects like this causes gentrification, which we all know pushes people out of their homes when they can't afford the increased property tax or the rental prices that inevitably comes with having these large-scale development projects. Um, do you all see it that way? Do you think that a large-scale project like this is going to kick people out of their homes? And if so, what is the plan to prevent that from happening? I don't think a large-scale project is always necessary to kick people out of their homes. I think when it's done in an intentional way, when it's done to focus to make sure that there are opportunities for our neighbors, that's when these projects can be beneficial. And I think that's why there's a lot of questions from the opposition uh, is about, you know, where, you know, where are those property taxes going? How much are they affecting the community? Are people going to be able to stay? And if oh, we tackle those questions from the beginning, then that is, then that is what will ensure that we have less displacement and less gentrification from something like this. But it has to start with community engagement from the beginning. It can't just be something that is brought in and then, and then changes. Thank you, Esther. Lisa, you want to respond to that? Um, the whole collaborative plan is on the website. Um, it is on a transportation line that is accessible to young people and other people that live in this community. And um, to my knowledge, and I'm not quite sure. No, I am quite sure. There's no housing up there right now. There's no homes up there for it to be displacing. Nobody lives up there. Um, they're building housing. They're going to build mixed income housing up there. So as far as gentrifying the area, I mean, I don't know who they're going to gentrify and I don't know who they're moving out of their homes because nobody lives up there now. 
I think uh, the, the concern is that it's such a close proximity to a lot of housing that's on Northside Minneapolis um, that that is going to trickle over into that community and cause those property taxes to be increased because of the close proximity to the actual project development site. I would imagine that the I would imagine that the property taxes that are going to be um, increased are going to be the homes are the condos and the apartments downtown in Minneapolis. I think that's probably where the more significant increase is going to go as far as property taxes, um, not necessarily this area. Thank you, Lisa. Alan. Yeah, I'll just say that I would rather see. Maybe I'm old fashioned traditional industrial uses because I think that is the greatest way to deliver middle class supporting jobs. Um, I use the word gentrification, it's sort of enter entertainment gentrification. Um, and I just wish we could find businesses that could, you know, come in and do this. Uh, I've driven as a database consultant out to Rogers, Minnesota, um, over into um, Robbinsdale to machine job shops or to plastic extruders. And these are businesses that traditionally used to be in the cities that would make jobs for the residents of the city. And they were good jobs. Huh. And they still exist here in Minnesota. You know, I've, I've seen them. That's, that's, the time. that's the time, Alan. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Esther. Thank you, Lisa. Um, we're actually going to enter into now the, the wrap-up portion of today's debate. Um, I'm going to allow each candidate a minute and 30 seconds um, to, you know, just offer any last departing thoughts, um, key things on your campaign, stuff that you want our audience to take away from today's debate. Um, and also you can talk about where they can find more information about your campaign during this time. And we're going to have Esther go first, Lisa second, Alan last. And your minute and 30 seconds starts now. Well, thank you so much, Elijah, for bringing us all together for this important conversation. Um, you know, I will just say that you know, as we're looking at the continued enhancement and development of our district and the inclusivity of it, we can't forget the environmental impacts. Um, I saw people in the chat were, were talking about that. And one of the things that's also really crucial to my campaign, in addition to housing, is making sure that we are living in a safe, clean environment. So we have clean air, clean water, access to healthy and nutritious food. We are building up that resiliency within our community. Um, so those are things that I that I think are really crucial and important as we move forward. I think moving into a green economy is going to be vitally important, not only just for the city of Minneapolis, but for across the whole state to make sure we still have um, those beautiful areas and that we're keeping people safe. Um, where people can find me at the end of this, if you want to learn more about my policies and ideas from across the spectrum, please visit me at my website, estheregbadjai.com. You can also follow along online on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at go for Esther. Um, I will drop all those information in the chat as well. And definitely feel free to reach out. If you have any questions about anything, I get back to people and I'm really um, interested in talking with you and learning with you and working with you to build the district that we all deserve. So thank you very much. Thank you, Esther. Lisa, your minute and 30 seconds starts now. Okay, basically what I was saying is I'm fighting for my community's basic survival. Um, we need our needs met, affordable housing, strong public education, economic development, criminal and 
um, criminal justice and restorative justice, just to name a few things. These are things that can be accomplished at the state level. And um, I'm ready for the fight. I'm ready for the challenge. I'm not a newcomer to the district. Like I said, I know the history of the district. I know the things that the people will need. I'm not, I don't, I don't belong to any special interest group. I'm ready to fight. I'm ready to do my part to move my community forward because we've been left behind for decades. Thank you very much. You can reach, find out more about me and my website, lisa4mn59b.com. And um, I think that's my, that's the name on my Zoom and also we'll be putting it in the chat or you can go to my Facebook page. Um, I'm, um, I've been endorsed by the Green Party. I'm very happy to be on board with the Green Party and I thank them very much for their support. Thank you, Lisa. And then Alan, you have a minute and 30 seconds starting now. Um, I, would, I would like to be representative of 59B. I know there's many neighborhoods in it. I only live in one. None of us can really live in more than one neighborhood at a time. And I've been in this one for uh, 40 years, actually. But I have spent time on the north side. I've gone around the neighborhood. And I really, it's a really great place. It is sort of a schizophrenic uh, district because we have some of the richest and some of the poorest uh, um, parts of uh, the state. And it makes it difficult to represent. But I think because I try to, I'm sort of a disinterested person. I, when I approach public policy, really believe in looking for the enlightened self-interest um, and what's best for the, everyone in the district. And I know there's always conflicts, but I do believe we have to try and find things that work. Um, I've been an activist. I've been a volunteer. Um, I think I could do a good job. I want to thank Elijah for putting this together. I want to thank my uh, other two candidates. Uh, I think either one of you do a great job. And I wish you all luck, <laughs> and thank you again. Oh, and alanshalevsky.com, and you can take the spelling, alanshalevsky.com is my website, um, and uh, I also, I'm on Facebook, I have my personal profile, but also my campaign website there. Thank you, Alan. Thank you all for your time and your patience. I appreciate it. And thank you all for being respectful of each other. I agree with Alan. I think whoever wins will be a great candidate to uh, represent District 59B. So I'm not concerned about that. I know we'll be in good hands regardless who comes out as the victor in November. So I wish you all the best of luck in the last, what, 28, 27 something days of your campaign. Um, this is where, you know, everyone's going to be out door knocking, making sure they're calling those people that they haven't gotten to on their list yet and trying to scrape up those last couple of dollars from folks. So I wish you all the best of luck. Um, please be safe, be healthy and be well. <laughs>